This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Alyssa Adams, and I'm a physicist who fell in love with biology. For my PhD, I studied the question of what makes living systems different than not living systems? And as more specifically, is there a mathematics that we can use to be able to understand and define life and how it's exactly different than not living systems? Now, this is an interesting question because today we're always looking at the stars and we're always wondering, is there life outside of Earth, outside of our solar system? Is there is there any way that we'll be able to make contact with like even something that's like intelligent alien life? But even a more simple example, could we make contact with something that might not even be intelligent? What would life look like even at all? So let's imagine that we're astronauts, and not just any astronaut, but we're the astronauts that are going to be the first team to visit a planet outside of our solar system in the search for extraterrestrial life. So we already know that this planet is dark, it's cold, and it's frozen, just from what we know by looking at astronomical data. But as we get there and our ship lands, we notice that the planet is completely covered in this weird black substance that's very strange. So we get out of our ship and we get some samples and we put it in our test tube. And it looks completely different than what we would expect. It moves in strange ways and it might turn different colors. When we get back to the ship and we bring our samples back home to Earth, we want to know, is this life? And more specifically, is this life that doesn't have any chemistry that we're used to seeing on Earth? Because it's frozen, there's no water on this planet, there's no oxygen, it's cold. So what would life have to look like in that environment? So chemistry is really just a way that uh, matter transforms over time. And we formalize those rules and we know how those things look like as they change over time, thanks to chemistry. But another way that things change over time is by physically acting on a physical system. Now in this picture, we have a sculptor who's physically doing a process on something that's not alive. Now we all know that rocks aren't alive, but in this example, because the sculptor who is alive is acting doing a process on this non-living rock, we can say that the whole system together of the sculptor and the rock and the actual process of chiseling is life. So how can we understand these physical transformations and uh, think about like what do we what do we see and what were the processes that got us there, even though it's not alive? So we know that there's a difference between life and alive. And just because some Something isn't alive doesn't necessarily mean that it's not life. So another example is thinking about these rocks that we find on Mars. Now, there's a lot of things out there in space or like other planets in the moon that you look at it and it's like, oh, that looks like a shape that we would see here on Earth. So for this example, is this sort of looks like a weird Pokemon hybrid between something and I guess an iguana. That's what I see anyways. So our intuition is to say, oh, that looks like an iguana. We see iguanas on Earth. We know that iguanas are alive. This must be alive too. 
But it could be that the process that got us to this rock shape might look completely different than what is uh, actually something that's life and alive. It could just be something like a boring geological process or maybe an asteroid hit Mars and it caused a funny shape to go off and roll down a hill and then that's what we get today. So it's not necessarily about the actual state that we're currently looking at, but in order to understand if it's life versus not life, what we have to do is we have to think about the processes that got us there. And processes of things that change over time is also known as evolution. It's beyond chemical composition. It's how things are changing over time. Now, there's two kinds of evolution, I think, that we're used to thinking about. And the first one is more biological, and we think of like Darwinian evolution. Here's a diagram of the evolution of whales over millions of years. So first, it sort of looks like a, a pig, and then it's sort of like maybe turned into something that kind of looks like an otter or something. And eventually, over millions of years, we have the whales that we see today. So that's a way that a physical system, which is a living system, changes over time. But as a physicist, I also know that there's a different kind of evolution, which is just this generalized notion that things change over time, like the evolution of our planets going around our solar system. This is two completely different kinds of evolution, where one is about biology and it's also open-ended as well. And what it means by open-ended is it means that it's constantly changing, it's not repeating itself exactly over time, and it's always coming up with new things. But as a physicist, we don't have any notion of how to capture that in terms of mathematical equations. So what is the mathematics of the system that uses open-ended evolution instead of regular evolution? Because we know a lot about mathematics of the evolution about how planets go around the solar system. And we know a lot about the evolution of the a ball swinging in a pendulum because these things are things that repeat themselves over time. They have symmetries. And no matter where you're at in space, the laws of gravity and all of those laws of physics are the same. But it doesn't necessarily seem like that's the case with biological evolution. So as an example, I wanted to talk about my favorite game when I was a kid, which is Conway's Game of Life. Now, I first saw this Game of Life in 1996 with our brand new Windows computer. And basically how the way it works is you are introduced with a grid. And if you're a white square and you have a bunch of different squares around you, depending on that configuration of different colors of squares is going to tell you in the next time step if you are a white square or if you are a black square. Now, this game got really, really famous because it has really simple rules, but you see all sorts of really cool emergent phenomenon, persistent structures, things that move around the, the screen in all sorts of interesting ways. And people were really excited because they thought maybe life works like this too. But is the system open-ended? And unfortunately, for this case, it's actually not. And I'm going to tell you why. In open-ended evolution, we have a system that doesn't repeat itself exactly over time. It grows in complexity. Conway's Game of Life also grows in complexity as well, but it doesn't do something that's known as innovating, which is mean it creates something new over time. So you can have structures that may look new, but as they grow and they evolve and they change, they're not necessarily doing anything that isn't completely predictable. 
And biology is changing its rules over time. And it's also changing its rules according to the environment. So the natural selection of a bacteria would look completely different depending on what environment it's in. But in terms of Conway's game of life, that stuff doesn't matter at all. The rules never change depending on where they're at on the screen. They're always going to be the same everywhere. So can we get open-ended evolution from simple computer programs like Conway's Game of Life? Now, Conway's Game of Life is an example of a two-dimensional cellular automata. But in order to uh, make this a little bit simpler for ourselves, instead of looking at the two-dimensional version of cellular automata, let's focus on the one-dimensional version of cellular automata. These have a special name, and they're called elementary cellular automata. And what they do is there's 256 different kinds. And the kinds are described according to their rule. So in this example, we have one of those kinds of elementary one-dimensional cellular automata, and it's called rule 110. And you can see the rule table right here. And what the rule table is going to tell us is how everything is going to change from one state into the next state. So I also have an initial state, which is just my initial configuration of white squares and black squares. It could really look like anything I want. But when I'm looking at the rule table, I'm asking myself this. For every square that's in my state, what color am I? And also, what color are my two adjacent neighbors to myself? So we can look at this for the one black square that's there. So according to this rule 110 rule table, I have my one black square that is surrounded by two white squares, so I know that in the next time step, that square is going to stay a black square. But there's also other squares on the board too. So there's also the white square next to the black square on the right, and there's also the one on the left, and there's also the white squares that are completely surrounded by other white squares. So when we put all of this together, we get our next step. And this is what it looks like. So we continue doing this over time. And even though it looks like a two-dimensional cellular automata, it's not the same thing as Conway's Game of Life, because time is going downwards like this. It's still one-dimensional, but you can still just see the whole evolution on the same picture, which makes it really handy to do. So what happens when we get to the very end here? Well, when we get to the end, the boundary is just going to wrap around itself. So it's not an infinite plane that's stretching off into infinity. It could be. But for this example and the cellular automata that we studied, it's more like a Coke can. So once it goes all the way to the end, it's simply just going to pop out on the other side. And each of these cellular automata can look completely different depending on what rules that we're using. So that was rule 110, but this is rule 30. So you can see that the rule table is slightly different, but as a result, the pattern that you get from having an initial state is going to look completely different as well. So what's an, e an even easier way to look at cellular automata? Well, an even easier way is just to think about how the states are changing into other states in a state space transition diagram. So the way that we do this is we look at all the individual unique states and we're going to take that state and we're going to represent it as a circle. But according to this rule, it's going to evolve and it's going to turn into a next state. And that's like this purple state here. And the way that we would represent that is a yellow dot and an arrow pointing towards the next state. Because what we're saying is that this state leads to this next state according to this particular cellular automata rule.
Now, we continue to do this for all the different states. And remember how we're not having an infinite plane. Instead, we just have like this constrained Coke can world. And because it's like this wraparound boundary, this pattern is eventually going to repeat itself over time. So what that's going to look like is it's going to look like something that has a cycle in its state space topology diagram. This is just a cartoon example. If I were to actually write this out for Rule 30, this would actually look much bigger. Now, all elementary cellular automata are going to repeat themselves exactly. And that's not very helpful for open-endedness because what we want for open-ended evolution is something that doesn't repeat itself exactly over time. But this is how they repeat themselves, just so that you know. So if you start in any state on the state space diagram, what's going to happen is you just simply follow the arrows to know which state you're going to get to next. So if I start here, I follow my arrow into I'm in the next state, and then I'm going to follow that and I go to the next state, and so on. But you'll notice that for every cellular automata, you get stuck in a cycle. And you're going to repeat yourself after a certain number of states. So we can look at all of the different elementary cellular automata rules and all the different initial states, and what we get is we get these unique maps. If I'm on rule 240, it turns out there's these like distinct islands, and once I'm stuck in one of those islands, I can't necessarily visit any of the states according to this rule. And that's a really big problem for open-endedness, because open-endedness requires that something has to continuously innovate, and it continuously has to reach new states. So if I'm stuck in a rule where it forces me into islands, then that doesn't seem very open-ended at all. So what's it going to take in order to explore new states? What's going to happen if I'm stuck in one of these islands according to some sort of rule? Because it could be that, well, you know, the laws of physics are sort of like rules. They tell us how states change over time. Are we stuck on an island according to the laws of physics? And how are we going to break out of that? So say you are a bacteria, right? And you're in an environment that has an abundance of all sorts of foods, but you're not able to digest any of the food because you don't have any of the proper enzymes. What you want to do as the bacteria is you want to thrive. You're in a state that you're not thriving and you want to go into a state where you are thriving and taking advantage of all the food in the environment. So what you do is you uh, have go through this process of random mutation and natural selection, and after some point, you find yourself the ability to make this new enzyme and to be able to digest this food. So the rule that was able to take you there in this biological example is random mutations and natural selection. But that random mutation and natural selection, these in evolutionary pressures, might look completely different depending on what environment you're in as, a, as an organism. And also it might be completely different depending on what state you're currently in as an organism. So if I'm already in a state that uh, I, I can already process this food, there's absolutely no reason for me to change into another state at all. So the exact rules and the exact mechanisms that drive the actual rule that takes you from one state to another state can change completely differently. So I represented that by having different colored arrows. So it seems as if biology doesn't necessarily look like this, where if you were to draw or imagine all the possible states that biology could be in, 
and the transitions between those states would not look like something that is only one rule. So for cellular automata, these elementary cellular automata only evolve according to one rule. So in this example, this is rule 30. So if I have rule 30, there might be an island out there of a state that I can't reach according to rule 30. But if I look at rule 110, I can reach that. But then even if I shift to a new rule that's completely new, I'm going to be losing states in the meantime. So what am I going to do in order to reach all of the states? And the answer is to use many rules, not just one rule, but many rules. So maybe to go from one state to another state, you use rule 110, and then going from another state to another state that's unreachable, you can use rule 30 in order to do so. So this brings up an interesting question of what's picking the rule, right? So if we think that biology is acting like a cellular automata system that is able to pick its new rule to get to new states, how is it doing that? And what we know from biology is that it seems that it's doing it from the environment, it's getting information about its environment, and it's getting information about its current state that it's in, like its current configuration, and it's using that information to drive how it picks the new rule and to uh, create the new rules. So let's step back from cellular automata for a second. Just for a second, we'll get right back to it. But we're going to think about a whale in an ocean. Right. So we going back to our whales, right, they're evolving and they're changing over time, but they're also in this ocean. And we don't necessarily think of the ocean as being particularly open ended. We just kind of think of it as the environment now. But we also know that the environment also has like little things embedded in it that are living systems. So we could even say that the environment is open ended, too. But for now, we're just going to be really simple. And we're going to say that we have an open ended biological system embedded in something that is not open-ended and it's something that's that's uh that's sort of like regular evolution so what we did is we decided to explore that kind of system like what if we took that idea and we turned it into a cellular automata model and so we have two different cellular automata to represent what um, both of those things. So we have one that represents like a whale system where it's like there's it's a biological system that's capable of changing its rules over time. And then we also have this other system that is not changing its rules over time. It's just doing regular evolution, a regular cellular automata like the game of life. But that's the environment that the thing is in. So we had it set up such that um, as these two things uh, evolve at the same time in parallel, but they're, but they're separate, they're kept separate, what the whale system, the biological system is going to do is it's going to, at every time step, it's going to ask itself, what is my current state and what is the current state of the environment in? And it's going to take those two things and put it into an arbitrary function that we just made up in order to to pick its new rule. So we do recognize that when we did this, we were just arbitrarily picking um, like a function, but we tried many different functions. Um, but the point is that we just wanted to see that if it there is a function that takes in those two things in order to pick a new rule, do we get something, do we get a cellular automata system that actually looks more like biology than something that Conway's The Game of Life does? And it turns out that, yeah, we do. So here are these whale systems. So these, is, these are our open-ended cellular automata on the left. And you can see that they look 
they look really different and you can see where the rules have been changing over time. And on the right side, you can compare these to um, the regular cellular automata that don't change the rules over time. They're not open-ended. We know that they're not open-ended. They're not like biology. But what we do have on the left is something that is actually starting to look like biology because it's taking these biological principles of, oh yeah, we can change your rule based off of the environment and we can change your rule based off of our current state. And what we get is something that we have never seen before in cellular automata, which is extremely exciting. So the lesson to be learned here is after we looked at this and we thought about it, is that open-endedness happens in the smaller part of a whole system. But that actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because when we think about ourselves on this planet in the middle of the solar system, we're not thinking about the open-endedness of the universe. We're just thinking about the open-endedness of ourselves and biology. So it, it really made sense and we felt really good about those uh, results because of that. But of course, there's still more to explore. So we want to understand, okay, how does structure equals function? And how can we put that into mathematical sense too? So if we're thinking about something like proteins, you know, uh, one of the common things that's said in biology is structure equals function. If it looks like scissors, it probably is scissors. It's going to cut something. So, but what is the mathematics behind that? And how is that driving the ability for a system to create new rules and new laws of physics to evolve itself over time? So, uh, you know, what about things like viruses? Can we apply these, this knowledge to understand how viruses are going to evolve and change over time? Because they're made of proteins, and proteins are a lot like computer systems because they have this really great ability to, as they change and they uh, evolve like this, they're also changing their function. They're changing their rule as well in order to interact. So how can we take that and understand things like viruses? What we really want in the end is we really want something that looks like a calculus, but for biological evolution. Because, you know, when we get off the planet and we're saying goodbye to our brand new planet that we just collected our samples from, we are really happy that we're able to, you know, uh, use our information about the laws of physics to get our spaceship all the way back home and to slingshot around other planets and stuff like that. But we don't have those same mathematical, mathematical equations to to be able to look at a sample of uh, viruses or bacteria and to have a set of equations to understand what it's going to look like in a particular context um, over the next some amount of time. But that's what we're working for and that's what we're really excited to see in the future. So I want to give a special thanks to everybody who's uh, worked with me and uh, has been amazing colleagues, everybody from uh, my PhD program and everybody who is a part of um, my current postdoc position at UW. So I want to give a special thank you to everybody there and special thank you to you for listening to this talk. Thank you so much. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's leading scientists. This talk was brought to you with support from the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, the Lasker Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.